official podcast of SoCo. This is a platform for our community of creators, indie workers, and entrepreneurs. On with the show. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Communal, the SoCo podcast. I'm here today with Greg. Hello. And Fiona. Hey. Once again, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. We're going to have some fun today, y'all. What you got for us, Greg? We are going to be chatting with Fiona about all the things. And if you haven't met her, she is pretty impressive, pretty dynamic, and a good friend of this community. She's been a SoCo member for a long time. But that's way at the bottom of the list of all the cool things that you do, Fiona. Um, competitive triathlete, uh, solopreneur for over a decade, uh, certified destination marketer, um, environmental activist, <laughs> yeah, farmer, <laughs> mini farmer, mini micro farmer. Micro. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of cool stuff, and and so we're we're super excited to talk to you just in general about where things are in your world and what you're working on. And, um, y- you know, y- y'all listen because it's entertainment and it's also education, we hope. Um, and so Fiona's got a lot that we can cover with her. And we're, we're, so we're going to probably j- jump all over the place with this thing. And uh, But at the center of all this will, will be Fiona and the work that she does, uh, how she combines talking – to her, about her in the third person, and she's three feet away from me. <laughs> this is a little weird. This is for you, audience. Uh, the work that she does, how she blends, uh, what she's really good at doing with with some of the things that she's personally passionate about. So we're going to get into all that. But uh, but just for, for those that don't know you, just a little bit of an intro. Your time to shine. Mm, yeah. Uh, well, my name is Fiona Martin. Um, I... Have been I've been running my own business since 2011 in digital marketing, and it was basically because uh, I moved back to the U.S. from Scotland and was just not getting anyone replying to my CVs, and so I had to get out on the streets and get some clients, and I've been doing that ever since. Um, my dad was Scottish, my mom's American, and so I grew up both in South Carolina and in Scotland, and so that was an interesting childhood, and it was a great place to learn new things when I went to university there and stayed for a decade. Um, yeah, I got into triathlon in 2012 as something different to do. I like being active and feeling physically fit and just running all the time was making me sore and having IT issues. Um, my dad was a runner, did a bunch of the big marathons, Boston and New York and London, Glasgow, and my brother was a cyclist, and so I was like, well, I can one-up them by just doing swim, bike, run. <laughs> you know, I'll be faster across the three. Um, but it's actually really good for cross-training. Cross I don't really like just doing – like I was getting bored with just running injury-wise and mentally, and so it's nice to cross-train. And then um, in terms of, like, environmentalism, I think I've always wanted to – live on a farm. When I grew up in Scotland, I lived on a tiny island with only 800 people. So out the west window was the sheep and out the east window was the cows. None of them were ours. We lived, you know, surrounded by crofts. And I've always really liked that sort of pastoral lifestyle. Um, And so my husband, Lance, uh, got into starting to grow vegetables and stuff in our little residential lot we have like just over an acre and a half 
And, um, and then I got on board and we have chickens and I grow medicinal herbs and, um, just really enjoying that journey as well. Herbs, people, not herbs. No. We've all been doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> There's certain things I will retain from my Scottish times. Herbs is one of them. I will say oregano and not oregano, though. So. <laughs> Didn't know Jeez. This kind of blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it, we could go, you know, is it aluminum or aluminum? I'm sticking with aluminum, so, you know. See, I kind of like aluminum. It just sounds cool. Do you know why they call it aluminum in Britain? Why? Because if you go through the periodic table, it's like sodium, barium, and then they're like, aluminum isn't fitting. Aluminium. So they changed it to aluminum to fit the inium at the end of things. So. <laughs> Forget your science. Oh, we like it this way. Those Brits. <laughs> so, so you're doing a bunch of stuff. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about your your the business, mm-hmm. the business. Uh, so FGM Internet Marketing. Um, let's talk a little bit about how it got started and where it has gone, and then what it is now, because that's a pretty interesting story. Obviously, obviously we uh, we love collaboration and all things cooperative around here and uh and you've done something that i don't know if a lot of people fully understand or appreciate with fgm internet marketing and so hopefully we can talk a little bit about that too because it's super cool Mm -hmm. yeah so like i mentioned i started fgm internet marketing back in 2011 and i call myself a um reluctant entrepreneur i i didn't like set out like you know, I didn't go to uni and be like, I'm going to start a business. Like, I just didn't. I studied languages and music. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but it became necessary. And uh, the way I built my business was just doing what I do. I was previously working for Visit Scotland, which is the Scottish Tourism Board, sort of managing their email marketing for North America and Australasia. And I thought, you know, I could do a lot of the stuff that we're doing with this million-dollar-a-year budget and just scale it down and do it for small businesses. So that was my pitch back in 2011 all the way through for many, many years. Um, The thing is, you can't do everything by yourself. So uh, like many freelancers, solopreneurs, um, you find other people who can help you and you work with them as, you know, subcontractors. But I've been doing that now for, you know, 12 years. I'm not... 28 anymore i'm 40 i'm tired of like doing everything by myself (laughs) i find that i also can't like there's only so much you can learn and as you know the digital landscape in 2011 was smaller than it is now in 2023 and i can't be a top content writer seo strategist newsletter producer social media content writer videographer like i there's not one person who can do all that well And so um, I have people that I use who do these things, a web development team, a copywriter, graphic designer. And um, the thing is, you know, why I want them to get, I want us to have all more consistent work, but I was never in a space or maybe never felt comfortable with, with raising capital or going to a bank and asking for like a big loan to say cover the payroll for the next 12 months. I feel like that might be the traditional way to build a business is be like, I'm going to hire these people, pay them full time. And when we're going to fill the pipeline with work and I just haven't, I don't know, just haven't done that. And I also don't want employees. I have had an employee in the past. It was great. It was bad. I am looking to work with people who 
are self-starters who know their stuff and don't need me to tell them how to do it. And that's what you get when you work with other freelancers and contractors. Like, I know my stuff. Like, I don't need to tell you how to write this because you're better at it than I am, right? So I'm trying to, you know, trying to figure out how do I not have employees, but how do I take care of everyone who's doing the work and building value for the business and our clients? And started looking into what it would be like to change the business into what's called a workers-owned cooperative. And I started looking at that probably probably post-COVID, 2020, 2021, sort of that time. And basically, a workers-owned cooperative is everyone who works owns the business. Um, and so you share in the rewards instead of all the profit coming to me as the business owner, you would distribute profit amongst the workers, but also spreading out the risk involved as well. So traditionally, if things were bad, I was getting the pay cut because I don't, I mean, it's not my workers fault that we don't have more clients. It's not even really my fault, but I always want to be able to pay people. (laughs) I've been struggling before and I don't want to be like cutting people's paychecks. But then that also does get tough because you're you're cutting your own paycheck. So that's kind of a really quick talk about a workers own cooperative, but I'm sure there's like deeper things to talk about there. So you know I obviously share a love for the cooperative model and we've um you shared a book with me called Cooperative Power that we read oh I read and we've been discussing um you, you know, what, I've always been attracted to the idea, but it's always felt like society at large views the cooperative model as something that is either like communistic or socialistic or or at the very minimum anti-capitalistic. And maybe that last one is true, but um, so some of what I've learned is that this cooperative business model has been around for hundreds of years. In fact, it is a large contributor to the global economy and to the even to the United States economy. And so I'm, I'm interested. Could, could you just maybe just dispel some of the myths around the, the cooperative model? And then I would love to talk more about the components of having a voice, a vote, and ownership. Because mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's something any, you know, the two things that you're talking about are things that every solo, every solopreneur, every business owner struggles with how to do really quality work and how to deliver it well and then how to take care of everyone involved. That third one, I think too many people probably care less about it, but for me as well as you, that matters, right? That that the people that you do the work with, taking really good care of them so that we can all do great work together and thrive, not just survive, but thrive mm-hmm. is really important. So, for the haters out there, the cooperative haters, <laughs> the folks that are like, this is n- this is trash. It doesn't work. Right? Capitalism has won the day. Um, what do you say? Oh, goodness. Um, where to start? <laughs> so the cooperative model is a – I mean, I haven't come up against anyone to my face who's been super, like, negative about a cooperative model. I don't think – I think there's a lot of, like – People don't know what it is. So usually when you say a co-op, they think, honestly, most people around here think of REI, which is a consumer co-op. That's where 
Um, the idea with a consumer co-op is people get together and pool their money to buy goods in large quantities, which means the cost to them is less, right? That's economies of scale. And then you have producer co-ops, which are actually quite common around here in the South because you have farmer cooperatives and electric cooperatives because a big private entity wasn't going to come into the deep south and electrify it so the people pulled their money together to get the electricity down here so it's a way of doing things pulling people's you know if there's more people putting their capital together someone may not have a ton of capital but if you put it all together they can get what you want and a workers own cooperative is more that the people working are doing the same thing pulling the capital to be able to grow the business and scale um, in terms of people calling it commie or socialist that usually comes from people who don't can't define communism or socialism to begin with <laughs> you know? so stupid people <laughs> no. i mean our our country the united states has is still this red scare hangover mccarthyism sort of thing that we learned about in school is very alive and present um we live in a country with a capitalist economy and the co-op is, I would say, an alternative. It's a way to work together while in the communist, excuse me, while in a capitalist economy. Because there's no choice. Like if someone's if someone's an anti-capitalist, and I am an anti-capitalist, I have no choice but to still work in this system. Right. And so you have to find because I can't just like opt out. It, <laughs> you can't. You know what I mean? Right. It's you know if you don't like it, then leave. Well, I mean that's not a realistic thing for anyone. Um, this, you know, capitalism has done some great things. Let's not say that it's all entirely evil, but we are in this late stage of capitalism. And if you look at the critiques of capitalism, they are that they will go towards monopoly and that they will go towards a, a smaller of people, a smaller set of people with the haves and a greater people with have nots. And we're absolutely in that right now. I mean, yeah, Amazon, Google, Facebook, these are these huge monopolies, you know, buyer buys Monsanto, so they have the whole vertical from growing your food to making you sick to, to then treating you for sickness. I mean, the critiques of capitalism from the 1860s are proving true. So mm. there's got to be corrections in it. Or there's going to be a revolution of some sort, or there's just going to be a lot of pain and poverty. Um, and so trying to build, so co-ops have always popped up in capitalist economies when things are going off the rails. They were really popular in this country in the 1920s and 30s in the Depression, which was caused by capitalism. It was the first golden age, gilded age that then bust, yeah. and people had to just be like, Nobody's coming to save us. I have two cents. Let's make it four cents and try and get through this thing together. Yeah. And so I really see that coming around again as we're in the second Gilded Age and we have these billionaires while the rest of the middle class and lower class of the U.S. is just like falling down. And so it's trying to pull together to make it through and, and distribute what we can. I, that mm. so that approach to me resonates deeply. This idea that together we can all thrive, we can all succeed, we can all achieve some of our financial goals. You, you know, I, I, I've always heard that sort of you know sort of anti cooperative mentalities or like why why do you view profit as a bad thing and 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 cooperatives don't view profit as a bad thing, 
right? Or, or even the generation or the creation of wealth that they cooperatives, we view the distribution of that, those resources, that wealth as the thing that cooperatives are really trying to solve, at least in the worker owned mm-hmm. model, right? Let's kick ass. Let's find great clients. Let's sell them. And let's create and, and, and sell incredible products. And then let's all benefit from the surplus, right? Mm-hmm. That's left over, right? When we, when we pay all our bills, um, it's interesting that 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 it, it is not as popular as I feel like it should be maybe in this country, but maybe that's because, you know, the accumulation of wealth and power is a mainstay of our society here. I think we're not taught about it. It's like it doesn't exist, you know, like even looking into, you know, as I'm walking this cooperative path with my co-op partner, Ben, we have struggled to find professionals in South Carolina like attorneys that will help us change our founding documents to fall in line with being a workers own cooperative. We've had consultations with attorneys in California, Wisconsin, Massachusetts, which are all little hotbeds of cooperatives and, and in North Carolina. Um, but we can't find any support here. And I didn't go to school for business, but I understand that like business school is just teaching you again, one way of doing things, which is like the private enterprise capitalist model. It's not showing you any other way of doing this. I think there's one university, I think it's UMass in Massachusetts that actually has like a course on how to build cooperatives. And so I can understand fear of the unknown, but also just that this isn't presented as an option. I mean, anytime you read anything about workers-owned cooperatives, they always bring up things like the Emilio-Romano region of Italy, which is like just a part of the world that is full of workers-owned cooperatives and their government supports it. For example, if you were to go on unemployment there, they give you the option of going on unemployment or giving you I think it's two years worth of your unemployment up front as long as you start a workers own cooperative. So there's like government programs mm. that are trying to do that. I, I've also heard in the UK, and I don't know if this passed, but they were trying to put through legislation that, you know, if there's a large company and the owner's like retiring and wants to sell it, that he first has to offer it to his employees and can't just go to another buyer, that they have a first right of refusal. Mm. Um, because, you know, what's happening is is all these mergers mm-hmm. and all these layoffs, mm-hmm. and we can't deny that that's what's happening. It is happening, you know? And um, so, I mean, there's definitely other places in the world and even in this country where there is that knowledge and people are more likely to step into doing work and that sort of model so what kind of what kind of issues have you run into trying to deal with local um uh, lawyers or whatever well we just we have a little bit about that yeah we haven't found a south carolina uh, barred lawyer so basically um what does that mean like they won't talk to you no we just it's more along these lines so there is I also fear that 
hey, we're starting a worker's own cooperative. I'm going to mm-hmm. get the backlash of being called a commie. And the reality is I don't want to spend an hour to two hours of my time, especially with an attorney yeah. who I'm having on the clock, to talk about my worldview and why I think a worker's <laughs> own cooperative is what I want for my business. Right. The reality is most right. professionals around here are going to say, you're stupid. You've worked in this business for 12 years. You own it. You need to get all the value out of it. Why would you share any of the value of your business? Yeah. You need to get bought out at X amount of money. And I'm just not in the mood to like Mm. do that so i'm looking for allies where Mm -hmm. we just don't have to have the educational hour or two of explaining why i want to do this model they just say okay you want to do a worker so cooperative i've done this for 10 different cooperatives already i'm going to help you walk that path makes sense right and so the experience they just don't have the experience here because it's not a model that's been pervasive exactly and in like california they have you know when you set up your business there's multiple ways of doing it right you just be a, a solo dba you could be like a single person LLC, which mm-hmm. is what FGM is right now. You could be like yeah. a partner LLC. You could be an S corp or whatever, you know, like different ways of incorporating. In California, they actually have a cooperative corporation oh, really? filing. Huh. South Carolina doesn't. There's yeah, nothing. Yeah. So what we would legally be is an LLC with partners. But mm. then that's why writing an operate agreement that outlines like how you enter the cooperative and how you exit is so important. And that's why we really wanted to hire an attorney with the experience of writing an operating agreement in that way. And like I said, I also just don't want to sit in front of an attorney who's telling me I'm stupid. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, we're not playing that. <laughs> so, so paint a picture for us and for the audience, you know, some five or more years down the road, right? When it's when it's working the way that you envision it working, what, what does FDM look like? What does the co-op look like? So um, there's that there's that capital buy-in, the 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 opportunity to pull resources um, that would have like a capital account. So part of joining a co-op is doing work with us for at least a year, uh, and then you have to contribute cash, or um, we're working out like a sweat equity version as well, or mm-hmm. like part of your paycheck goes into that capital contribution until you reach the amount. If we have a capital account, there's things that I could, I hope the co-op can do that I've not been able to do for myself for the past decade, which would be like actually do some advertising for our business. It'd be really fun to like splash onto the local scene and get the name out there. Mm-hmm. And the name might change. I don't know if I want it to be FGM internet marketing because that's far too much tied to me. Um, health insurance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I have, very poor health insurance. My husband's also self-employed, so we just don't have employer-based health insurance. Um, there's also so many causes out there that need our help, who need digital marketing help and website help, but do not have the budget to pay for the level of services we do. And I would love us to get to a point where we could take on, uh, you know, a nonprofit or a different types of organizations like one or two a year and do it pro bono because the stuff that really matters to me, environmentalism, land use change, uh, lifting the voices of marginalized communities, they're coming from a place generally of no money, but I want them to be able to be out there and compete at the same level, if not more than these massive organizations and businesses that have millions and millions of dollars. So those are three things that I would like to accomplish. You know, the other thing that you, you and I have talked about is in this idea of a cooperative for a lot of solos or small business owners. 
this is something I've begun to think about, you know, I'm in my mid forties in fighting form, but I mean, you know, you don't want to do what you do forever. Co-ops can be a great way to build a transition for yourself into your business plan. Mm. Um, that's not, it's not easy. It's not as easy as a transaction, a liquidity event, you know, and then you, you drop it and roll off to something else. It takes years of intentionality, but there's something really powerful about thinking about the thing that you are passionate about and building in a different way, designing, redesigning it in most cases in a way that could allow it to live on beyond you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to do that in this model, you have to, you have to like pull yourself out of it. Like you have to design your way out of it intentionally over time. Just like what we talked about with clockwork or anything else. It's, it's not a, you know, I'm done, buy me out, outside investor or strategic or whatever. It's like one more team member that takes on one more responsibility that, that over time you, you, know, you become v- valuable but in different ways and then eventually you're no longer needed in the business. And there's something really interesting about that, this, the, the idea that a cooperative model could live on forever yeah. if designed the right way. Um, and some of the examples in Italy and in, in the Basque region in Spain are, are fa- I mean, they've been doing this for hundreds of years mm-hmm. and they've continued to grow and evolve and, and, you know, and pop out little, little baby cooperatives. And, <laughs> and it's this, it's this model that's just ingrained culturally in how they do it in their, in, in everything that they do. So and I, I don't super, know. super, uh, and especially in that Ita- it, um, Italian region, it's super desirable to be in those co-ops. So like, I'm talking about like for FGM, like one year of doing work with us and then probably a capital contribution of $2,000, right? Which can be a lot, but I think it's also doable. Like these co-ops in Italy, the big ones, it's like 10 to 15 years of employment with them and then a $500,000 buy-in. I mean, that yeah. is the level of like desirability to work in these businesses because they have a um, great track record of taking care of each other because they, they're all in it together and also weathering all these economic ups yeah. and downs that are part of the capitalist economy is the boom and bust. And how many businesses do we know that are that when the bust comes, they, they're gone? I mean, we've just had this weekend the Silicon Valley Bank bust. I mean, we're not out of, you know, the 2008 recession was like, earth shattering for me at 28, but it's like I'm 40 and we're just going to go back through this again and again and again, you know, I am going to, I want to put a pin in what you just said and really highlight it. So I'm going to tell a story that I haven't really told anyone out here in, um, communal land. Um, when, when the pandemic hit, I mean, even today, Soko, we, we are, we are a member supported, 100% member supported organization, right? We are a for-profit, but at the center of what we do is it's about building community and it's, it's a social cause. And, but you know, what, what does the world know us at, as this place with cool workspace mm. and some cool events and really good people, but not really as a cooperative or even maybe a, as a, a community per se. So when the pandemic hit, we had to shut down for 90 days. I mean, there's the city, yeah, you know, the ordinance. And then the fear and the reality of COVID-19 and transmissions and all that. This place, the physical places that we operate, were empty for at least a year. 
you know, we had some essential workers coming in. We had some hardcore members coming in. We would have gone out of business if not for one reason. There were a bunch of members that said, it's not, I, I, I don't care about workspace. I don't, uh, it's not about rent or, you know, fee. It, I am invested in this thing and I, we, and I believe in what y'all are trying to do. Um, if, if it were not for that, we'd be out of business. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and that, that is a awesome <laughs> B intentional. Cause we try to build real relationships with people and, and see like a, a really good example of how a cooperative model can help you weather bad times and they're coming. We know they're coming, mm-hmm. right? Boom bust. It's the, it's the way this economy works. It's up and down roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be speeding up. I mean, I've had, you know, working with my co-op partner, Ben, um, you know, 2021 was a very good year for revenue for our business. And then 2022 just kind of got slow and it never really picked up. So at the end of the year, looking at the financials, I sat down with Ben. I'm like, we are, $25,000 down from the previous year, mm-hmm. which is a lot. I'm going to take a pay cut, but let's both look at our compensation. And we decided to both take a pay cut. And that was like huge. Cause like I said, for me, mine had always been Fiona gets a pay cut a hundred percent. It's much nicer and better to sit down with your co-op partners and say, yeah. look this, you know, we're all business people. We've been through this. It goes up and down. It looks a bit hairy. Can we all take a pay cut right now and reassess in quarter two and see if we can get our revenue up? And if we do, then we all get a pay increase. And it's it's been just a very nice experience as opposed to me taking all the pay cuts all the time. Yeah, yeah and that's another thing. This this model, like, it's lonely, it's lonely at the top. Even when the top and the bottom are the same human, it, it's a hard thing to do to, to be self-employed. It's just hard. Um. And I mean, and it's nice. It is nice to have people that you trust that have a sense of ownership, whether it is perceived or whether it is real, to be a part of the thing that you're working on. Um, and it's interesting because the hardest thing about co-ops, I feel like, is who's in that cooperative and managing that group, mm-hmm. especially when they get larger. You know, if you had 10 cooperative members. Um, yeah, that's a lot of votes. It's hard. But yeah. it's also the most powerful part about it and the thing that just Mm. in reading about some of these models and the ones that have survived and thrived and the ones that didn't, it was always about the people and the people coming together and, and, and and tackling hard problems, not hiding from them, right? Not delegating them away or whatever else. When, when everybody has ownership and everyone has a voice and a vote and everyone is working and supporting each other, you can't hide from those problems. You have to face them. You know, it's funny because the, the the single hardest thing about building a company is people, right? At the same time, it's the same problem. Even on the for-profit, you know, sort of mm-hmm. aggregated capital side, picking the right employees, not making mistakes, or investing in those – all this crap. Yeah. Business partnerships, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the every – most of them suck, right? Because I think the foundational principle of, like, ownership – Direct communication, cl- you know, clarity, being on the same page, sharing values. Like one of the things I love about Gene, and I love many things about you, even though I, I don't, I don't say it enough, is we both agree with period three. Our other, our our design development studio, we're not going to let it consume us. It is going to be a, a a mechanism for allowing us to do work that matters, get paid well to do it, but allow us to pursue some of the things that we, some of our personal passions and. I mean, sometimes yeah. we struggle with that. 
but well, yeah, most I mean, of the time it's it's a core value that sticks and you know we don't want to grow with people that don't share that value yeah. someone who's like give me all the work I want 80 hours they wouldn't fit like they wouldn't fit culturally with with, with no but that's important to have like a, a time period where you sort of get to know that person before they buy in or whatever oh yeah I mean from everything I read about co-ops like they just keep saying like the biggest thing is having the right people in your co-op. Well, of course, you know, like if you're not on the same page, you know, and not to make like co-op some amazing utopia. I think the downsides to cooperatives are the fact that you have 10 people (laughs) and one vote. And so one vote per worker. So in terms of like quick decisions, you need to like throw that concept out the door. Right. And I fe- I can feel that sometimes when I have like maybe a prospect or something and I say, Hey, look, I've got a meeting with my co-op partner next week. We'll get back to you next week. So we have yeah. to like slow down that like immediate decision-making, you know, wheel that we have and that this culture pushes us to make decisions right away. But I think that's also good. Cause I mean, how many decisions have you made on the fly that you regret later? And how many times have you worked for like a business that you thought you loved and then they start going in a direction that you're just mm-hmm. not agreeing with. Right. And that's where the mm. democracy at work aspect is trying to like mitigate that so that we're all on the same page and have consensus. And maybe uh, one thing I also talked about with our attorney that's kind of built into this co-op is that, you know, in this Columbia, South Carolina digital marketing ecosystem, we've all worked with bad clients Right. If you had like 10 digital marketers in here and you were like, hey, I've got this prospect. And then they go, you know what? Mm -hmm. I worked with that guy and he never paid me. Mm -hmm. And we're like, all right, because I there are people in this ecosystem that jump from freelancer to freelancer and leave a trail of broke freelancers behind them. And I want to like, in a sense the way a union in a large workplace would support the people and say that's not acceptable, mm-hmm. build a freelance, freelance cooperative where we have that knowledge and that someone can go around and do that. I love that. Hmm. All right, people. So that was Co-ops 101. <laughs> yeah. If you want to read more, check Fiona's uh, – check out check her out on, on the socials and, and online. She's talking <laughs> about this pretty regularly. Yeah, we're trying to do blog posts on fgminternetmarketing.com that mm. talk more about – some of the big questions we get, like uh, immediately when I announced the idea of the co-op, I had someone say, well, what's that difference between a co-op and a partnership? We have a whole blog post on that. Also talking about how it's been difficult to find legal help. So yeah. we are trying to update there as much as we can. So I want to sh- shift gears if we can. Let's be careful about how I say that. <laughs> um, for those that don't know, in addition to sort of just being an incredible human and having some really interesting things that she's working on. She is a competitive triathlete. Uh, and, and that, you know, that term gets thrown around a lot, but as soon as you get invited by team USA to go compete in Switzerland, uh, you are now a competitive triathlete. Yeah. Um, and that's what Fiona did. So, and I know Jean, you, you know, Jean is competitive in a number of things, that have to do with fitness and mindset and, 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 and wellness and all that stuff. Want to just talk about that a little bit about your journey as a triathlete and, and, you know, and the early mornings and the long hours, <laughs> what, what has that taught you about yourself? What has that taught you about how to prioritize things in your life? 
just interested in what have you learned from being a competitive triathlete now? Yeah, so um, so I did my first triathlon in August 2012, and I think that was because I was like a month out from turning 30, and it kind of scared me, you know, those big numbers. And I knew I, I, you know, grew up playing rec sports and high school sports. I also watched my father be a long-distance runner, and so certainly having my father's influence of seeing an adult who would get up and go for a run yeah. is, like, huge. If you don't see that, then, yeah, that person running down the street is insane. But there is, like, I've always enjoyed being physically fit. I was certainly not physically fit in my 20s. I was a heavy drinker and partier and I missed not having, not being physically fit and maybe not being hung over every single weekend. So, <laughs> <laughs> so part of the motivation was, you know, that aspect. And I just kind of did my own training for five or six years. Um, and I was pretty good on like the local scene. I definitely was on the age group podium and, I, but I just knew like, hmm. I wanted to step up to like a longer distance. So triathlon is the sport of swim, bike and run, but you have shorter distances and then you have longer distances. And I wanted to go to that half Ironman distance, which is 1.2 mile swim, 56 miles, 56 mile bike, and then a half marathon run. And I just thought, I don't really know how to train for that. And Mm. I also don't really know what I'm doing in my training. I felt like I had physical potential. Like if I can get on an age group podium by myself like what could I do if I had a coach and so in 2017 I applied to be part of Trimarty coaching team and um and was accepted and so my coaches are Marnie Sumbull and Corel Sumbull they're a husband wife team they live up in Greenville and um of course they're coaches they know how to train you like anyone who's done physical fitness for a long period of time there's that like base and the build Mm -hmm. and the peak and the taper like there's different things and when uh, my coach Carell saw the training I'd done pre-coaching he like laughed in my face and I said well it imagine what I could do if I was properly coached that's that's the way I took that you could laugh at me all you want yeah come on man work your magic and so they um I'm still with them and still coached and I very much enjoy uh, having someone write my workouts because I don't wouldn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be in the pool three times a week if someone didn't tell me yeah. to be in the pool, to yeah. be honest with you. Um, I think I went full in. Uh, 2018 was my first year coached, and that was a year that I competed at nationals and got my spot to Team USA, and I competed in Switzerland in 2019. Um, they've also coached me to compete at 70.3 World Championships twice now. Um but to be honest, I've come off a little like burnt out the last year. I got COVID in September and that really took it out of me. And then I got like a sinus infection. I just got really sick. Mm. And I'm not saying it's the, all the working out. Um, but when you work out that much and then you get mm-hmm. sick, it really, it really hits you hard. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's um, coming to prioritizing. You certainly have to be like to do, to work out 12 to 20 hours a week. You have to prioritize. Mm. You know, I got up and swam this morning. I can do that. But I'm in this stage now. I've done two full distance Ironmans, and the training hours for that are not falling into my priorities. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I feel like 
you know, my husband and I used to train together a lot, but then he got into like mountain biking and I've just felt very distant with my husband and like not having a good home life is like not a good setup for anything outside of it. And so, you know, I, my priorities now triathlon is falling down a little bit and my family life is going up. So I am having to make different decisions. One decision is I'm not doing an Ironman this year. I just don't want to ride my bike for four hours by myself on a Saturday reality. But, um, I love the physical fitness. It gives me this weekend, me and my husband did our first gravel race. Gravel's like a big upcoming, uh, cycling style. Um, (laughs) the roads in this country are horrendous in terms of quality, but also the people driving and how much your life is in, is in danger every single time you are on a road by foot or by bicycle and that takes a mental toll. And so there's a lot of people who are getting a gravel bike, which Mm. looks like a road bike. It just has bigger tires so we can ride these like dirt roads and there's no traffic on them. So me and my husband did our first gravel race together this weekend and that was awesome. And I finally had like the competitive spirit again. And so I think you have to, you have to figure out what your priorities are and understand that they'll change as well. Mm. You know, it's interesting you say that, um, you know, just finished a book a month ago called Essentialism. I think we've talked about it. And and one of the things that they were talking about in the book is to be effective at identifying your priorities and, and getting better at saying no, something that I know we all are actively practicing. But right, no to something that is obviously not good or no even to something that is decent to to make space for something incredible is this idea of looking at your decisions – not in terms of what it, you might get out of it, but in terms of the trade-offs. So this, this idea of like, I, yeah, I can go, I can go train for, prepare for, and and run an Ironman race, but I have to trade off time with my partner, mm-hmm. right, or time at home, or work, mm-hmm. or whatever else. And it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting the way you. I love how sort of factual and logical you are. I mean, you're like, yeah, well, obviously you're passionate about this stuff. You do it all the time, and it's crazy hours. You you wouldn't do it if you weren't passionate about it. But even with that, you you have been able to say, okay, what do I care about? What am I willing to give up to make that a priority? And then you rolled, you know, you just rolled in the relationship stuff, which is, you know, how many more hours of content do we need? right now <laughs> as it relates to relationships. But. Well, I mean, training for those long distance events, whether it's an ultra marathon or a full distance yeah. Ironman, like it, like I think that's something I realize as well. I, I don't know. I've like, you know, hyper independent, which is something I'm working on. Right. Maybe it's just why I'm being drawn to like, co- like collaborative working and like community is because I've just been far too much on my own and taking everything on my own in my family and my workouts and my work and just breaking under the pressure of it. And the reality is if you're going to train for an Ironman, you need someone in your home who's going to like cook for you and like not get mad if you're sitting on the couch and the bathroom isn't getting cleaned. And so as much as I have those conversations with my husband, like, does that actually happen in real life? Well, not really. And I'm like, it's, it's, uh, it's, you have to, there are trade-offs. That's the reality. Like, like you said, like the professionals who do it, well, a lot of them are working like a professional triathlete doesn't make a lot of money, but let's talk about the ones who are full on 100% triathlon and making money from sponsorships. 
they have they don't ever cook. <laughs> like, right. You know, right. They yeah. get up and like they have all their nutrition ready and mm-hmm. they just train and they come home and they sit on the couch and then they get up and train again <laughs> and like <laughs> Normal people, we don't have that life, you know, like it, it's a struggle to be able to fuel yourself properly and recover properly and do a long distance event like that. So we're not in that space right now. I want to spend more time with my husband. I want to spend more time with my animals, you know, so no Iron Man this year. And I'm excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, fucking incredible, right? That, that yeah. a person with a, you know, a business and a relationship and obligations, responsibilities, and a, a fairly active uh, 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 community involvement background, all that, and you were still able to fucking compete at the highest level. Like, I, yeah. If I had a hat, I would tip that right now. Chapeau. <laughs> no, just I mean, I'm, I'm just going to be real. I, I, I yeah, couldn't it's do impressive. It. I couldn't do it. It's impressive. I couldn't do it. I think it's also like. I think you could do it, Greg, if you had the commitment and you build into it. So that's another thing. It's like there's people who are like, I've never done triathlon. I'm going to do an Ironman. I think those people are crazy. Like, I'm not <laughs> – it's your choice. Go ahead and do that. But, like, I'm just not that person. I'm just like – you know, I did, like, 10 years of short course triathlon before mm-hmm. I did a longer distance to have the confidence but also understand what I'm getting into there is a lot of, there are a lot of people with certain mindsets that are like, go big and go home. I, I'm not there with that. Like it, it took me a while to build into that. I couldn't go from not training to like doing 10 hours a week. That'd be crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, we, we talk on this show every once in a while about this 1% every day kind of concept. And I, I think radical change is, I think the 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 time when you need that is very limited. It's it's a rare occasion when that's the solution. Yeah. If you want to accomplish something, it, it, it just feels much more attainable. Well, to a lot of times, way. a lot of times, the radical change is more like triage based as opposed to like sustainable. You know, like you make radical changes whenever you've made a giant mistake or. Yeah, you're trying to fix up a, in the hospital. Yeah, you're trying to fix a big problem with your business. Like, you know, you have zero money. Well, we need to go do some radical things to go generate money or whatever. You know, you made a big error and you have to go fix it. But if you want to build sustainability, like in your, mm-hmm. you know, your ability to compete, you have to build that base. Yeah, and I think it's also like thinking about habits. Like, it's very hard to break a bad habit. I think we yeah. all know that. But I think I always went into my training with the idea that I was creating a good habit. So yeah. I'm almost on the back like side too. of this where I'm just like, my body is ready. Like, we did yeah. our our gravel race on Saturday, and it was super fun because we didn't choose the longest distance. <laughs> uh, I was like, short course, please, which is still 44 miles. Um, and me and my husband rolled out, like not with some sort of, we're going to win this. Like we're going to go out and have a good time. And it was like an unintentionally well-paced ride. Like we both came out of that ride feeling awesome. We came out like feeling like we competed at the end, but we had gas in the tank. And then Sunday, you know, my coach's notes were like, uh, you know, you can do a run if you want, depending on how you feel. I mean, the weather was gross. It was like rainy and cold yesterday. So I wasn't really up for a one hour (laughs) run, but like my body is just like, Hey, let's go. Why aren't you moving? And that's like the habit that's now in my body that it wants to go. That's cool. Like that's, it's a, for me, triathlon is a lifestyle and not, um, a box to tick. And I absolutely see people Mm -hmm. who are like, 
who want to do an Iron Man and get an Iron Man tattoo, and then the next year they're like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same in business, though. People don't work on building that base of their business. They just jump right in, go full bore, get burned out like a year later, and they're like, you know. I, I love what you just said, though. You, you Instead of saying, this is a thing that I want to do, you know, to accomplish, right, to, to achieve, you said, I want to form better habits for my life. Yeah. This feels like a good habit. I'm going to lean into that. I'm going to commit to that habit. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe what's radical about the change is the decision to choose things that are good for us. Mm-hmm. Things that nurture our mind and body and spirit you know like and then the work is making your way down that path you know and and, yeah. and that's where everybody fails right because they everybody can decide something big but the choice to make that change is where the hard work comes in the mm-hmm. you know and and i love them i love the way you phrased it i, I imagine it made it easier to do because you know, it's like I I need to train for an Iron Man, <laughs> as opposed to being like every day I'm going to nourish my body by doing something physically challenging. Mm-hmm. Just saying it out loud, it feels more, it feels better. I mean, in the moment, it, you know, when you're in the second hour of your run, it still sucks, I imagine, but maybe not. I mean, maybe you're, maybe that mindset shift is the radical change that happened. Yeah. Um. So have so so I, I think we've I, I think that was some really cool stuff kind of crossing between being competitive and, and being, you know, being entrepreneurial and being in business. So one of the other things that I, I love about you is how you have leaned into some of the work that you enjoy doing, um, you know, leveraging some of these skills that you've got that are deep and, and you have a ton of experience and, and applying those to causes and or clients that you might have a more of an affinity towards. So can, can you talk a little bit about that that shift and what that's meant for the business? Yeah, well, I mean, not to be cliche, but people say if you love the work you do, you'll never work a day in your life, right? Well, I've certainly like had clients that like don't excite me. Like I always say I can do digital marketing for just about any business, but there's just certain industries that I'm not excited about and um, after like when I first started my business, probably in the first five or six years, you just take everybody like it, it, it's almost like, well, how dare I say no to someone? Like, I'm so lucky they want to work with me. But then I learned like, you know what? I really don't want to do any work for the real estate industry. That's one that like after working with a few mortgage brokers and realtors, I decided not for me. And also there's digital marketers who specialize in real estate and I don't, Right. But then I started, you know, finding clients where that I have affinity for their business. And I always say, like, I can market your business better if I truly enjoy your product or service. And so I think that's part of it. Also getting into like, like niches, like um, I've had clients in the triathlon space and triathletes are a different beast and we have different motivations. And so if you had like a digital marketing firm who doesn't know anything about triathlon, I feel like their ads just sounds like that it doesn't it doesn't resonate Mm -hmm. with the people they don't understand the motivations of why someone would spend 
$2,000 in a wheel set, (laughs) (laughs) silly stuff like that. So, um, for FGM internet marketing, I'm actively moving in that direction. I certainly, we certainly have clients already on our roster that are like in areas that we really enjoy, like health and wellness, triathlon, um, eco-friendly products and services outdoors, um, but we're trying to move and, and target those businesses as well because overall we enjoy doing that sort of work. Um, we do a better job because we enjoy it and we understand the audience better. And I think I was really spoiled in my first few years of being in marketing because I worked for Visit Scotland and like marketing Scotland as a country is just the best thing in the world because <laughs> everyone who works there loves Scotland. And so <laughs> it is really nice to like promote something that you absolutely adore and so I, that's certainly like where we are actively heading and try to direct our work. Seeking that feeling again. Yeah, absolutely. As often as we can. Um, well, dang. It's covered quite a bit. <laughs> uh, Co-ops to triathlons. Right, and, and everything in between. Yeah. Um, that's all I got. It's a good place to stop. Yeah. Fiona, anything you want to add? To I the mean, peeps out there listening? <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm also like, you know, trying to juggle a lot of advocacy work, you know, and like that bicycle pedestrian mm-hmm. safety thing. Like I said, you know, being a triathlete, I'm out on the road by foot or by bicycle for many, many hours. And in the past five years, I've seen the roads have physically gotten more dangerous for me. I've ha- received death threats. Um and so, you know, after my first death threat, I was like, I'm not having this. Like, <laughs> like that's not okay. Like, you can't tell me to my face you're yeah. going to kill me because I'm on a bicycle. Um, that's crazy. And, like, you know, first went to the sheriff's office. They were listened, but there's yeah. little they can do. And they were like, oh, you need to, like, advocate at the county level because our roads are built dangerously. Yeah. So I did that, and then they put me on the planning commission and, you know, and then they're like, oh, you need to advocate at the state level because the county has no money. And so now I'm on like Palmetto Cycling Coalition board and, you know, they're advocating at the state level. And then, the, and then they're like, you should go to Washington, D.C. and uh, talk to the senators. And so now I am like going to Washington, D.C. at the end of the month for the National Bike Summit to try and get some time with Sanders Graham and Tim Scott and my representative to just be like, this is the state of what's going on here. And, you know vulnerable road users, which is anyone who's not in a motor vehicle yeah. are like just being murdered on South Carolina roads for no good reason. Um, Isn't it funny that you have to go there to talk to them about here? It's, <laughs> you know, my thing is, and I, my big thing is I want to encourage anyone and everyone to get involved with their local government, because I do think that tra- change happens at the local level. Like we need to decentralize more. And we do live in a state that has home rule, which means they decentralized a lot of power from the state house in the 1970s and put it down at the counties and cities. Um, we're all busy, but our local governments are run by wealthy retired people and they don't know what it's like to be a working person period. And so the decisions they make make sense for them. Yeah. And it makes no sense for 90% of South Carolinians who are struggling to do what they need to do to live. Mm-hmm. Um, it does take a lot of time. Uh, <laughs> it takes a lot of like emotional and mental uh, energy from me. But when someone says, like, oh, well, you haven't done this or you haven't spoken to this person, I'm like, give me the book. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm going to talk to everybody yeah. and come back and, and not have this That's anymore. Cool. And so um, that is something that also takes a lot of time and energy in my life that I have to figure out my priorities. So I love that. You want to make change happen, choose to get involved and then put the work in mm. yeah. regardless. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, engage with local government because what we're taught in school about our democracy is not true democracy. And that kind of yep. links back to co-ops and yep. democracy at work with one voter, one, uh, I mean, one worker, one vote. We don't have that in the United States. Mm-hmm. People think our democracy is showing up to the polls every two years and it is really showing up at your county council meeting and your city council meeting and complaining about the lack of a stop sign and, you know, mm-hmm. you're sick of seeing a kid killed in front of your house because someone was driving 50 miles an hour through the neighborhood. Like, it, everyone needs to speak up because we all have those stories, but we're not engaging with the decision makers. Um, and that is not always an individual's fault. I mean, when they have their monthly meetings at two 30 on a Wednesday, <laughs> no. yeah. you know, and that again is something yeah. you need to go yeah. like, do oh, you yeah. want interaction yep. or they put a public notice out, which involves a Facebook post once yeah. with no further information. Like yep. it's intentionally, obscure and yeah. obtuse yeah, yeah. and so that's why i want more people to engage so that we can call out the ridiculousness that is our democracy and try and make this a true democracy hmm. we all that was fiona <laughs> you got your hours worth yeah with this pick with a this. fight with an endurance athlete that, that'll you'll win that one <laughs> yeah. yeah that'll be good for you that's what i say i've said it to our former county chairman <laughs> who called me upset because i liked his opponent's post like on facebook gave a thumbs up like and he called me the county chairman <laughs> why do you hate me talk about like the egos of these <laughs> yeah. small-minded men oh yeah and i said to him i'm an endurance athlete i'm yeah. here for the long term yep. so you i'll know, be here after you so it, i am he's gone so yep. got <laughs> that is a fantastic way to end it so y'all we've been talking with fiona martin uh Founder of FGM Internet Marketing, a worker-owned cooperative, uh, environmental activist, cycling and pedestrian safety activist, and one of our very favorite SOCO members. (laughs) Appreciate your time. That was fun.